All right, so honestly, it's been a really busy week for me. <laughs> My work, we're going through end of the year stuff. Um, and I believe you reached out and you wanted to talk about economic growth, I believe as it relates to welfare policy. That could be totally wrong, but give me the rundown. Um, so... Yeah, I, I want to talk about economic growth in the context of firstly how to achieve how to achieve it or how economists uh, either measure it or what steps can be taken for to encourage economic growth, and then the connection of economic growth on poverty reduction, not specifically welfare, but poverty reduction, and also. Um, how innov innovation uh, can affect economic growth and standard of living. Okay. Yeah, I mean that. Um, yeah, I mean that. That sounds like a good framework. Uh, so, what context brings you brought you to me, right? In, in in this in this topic as well. Well, it's funny. I I do also debate um, socialists and and communists often. Uh, or at least I used to <laughs> a bit earlier on, and um, I typically am the one that, that knows economics the most. Uh, it's not something I studied as as much as you have, but um, it was just nice to see like a real a person who who knew what they were talking about, who studied who studied the topic, debate other other people, and. Um, I thought maybe I can pick your brain a little. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's do it. Cool. So could you... So for, so I, I realize, you, you, again, you said you had a busy week, so let's keep it nice and light for our discussion. <laughs> but uh, economic growth from... Apart from GDP, obviously. Or maybe we can talk about what GDP calculates. But um, how, how, how do economists... Proper economists, not not myself, measure economic growth, and perhaps what what can the government do to encourage it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, typically, I mean, GDP is the classic measure. It's just the final price of goods with different components. Uh, the components of GDP is consumption, government spending, financial investment, and then uh, net exports. Um, and you know that is so that's you know typically how it's measured. It's a decent enough measure, just kind of what your economy is producing and the price that your economy can command uh, for those things. Um, and in terms of how to encourage economic growth, uh, there's a lot of ways. It really depends on the country, and it really depends on the time that we're talking about. Uh, but generally, uh, the big things, like if, if, if we're talking high, highest level possible, starting from zero, um, and by starting from zero, I mean like uh, if your economy is not experiencing a lot of growth, if you're, if you're a relatively poor country, um, a couple big things would be that you need to have a military that uh, is 
either stable in terms of how they run the country, uh, or you need to have a military that listens to civilian rule, right? Um, if you've got situations like in Latin America where basically the military is overthrowing the government and, you know, they're not exactly particularly stable or uh, investor friendly, then, you know, you're going to have a volatile situation. More fundamentally than that, really, um, you're going to have to have uh, stability no matter what you do, right? So what I mean by that is um, if your country doesn't have stable institutions, if you're constantly embroiled in conflict and civil unrest and uh, things like that, you're not going to be able to attract investment or spur any sort of development a lot of the times because people aren't going to want to build and you know, grow businesses uh, within your country because uh, there's no sort of understood civil society and social construct. Yeah, I mean, you know, because in, in places like America, you take for granted a lot of things, right? Um, and, whereas in a lot of countries, they don't, they don't have like the standard uh, social contract and, and sort of, you know... Um, civil service that exists. And, and so that kind of stuff is really important uh, from like a really high level. So political stability, rule of law, instit uh, political institutions that resolve conflicts and uh, keep everything orderly. What else? Um, beyond that, I would say things like investor rights are probably relatively important. Um, government services and programs play a big role too, don't get me wrong. So like the government being able to provide select services is a good thing. So, um, you know, the private market isn't going to do certain things. So it's important that the state does them, uh, or at least the private market's not going to do them as well. So things like providing an education, maybe delivering the mail, depending on the country, um, issuing a stable and secured currency. Um, all of these things are important functions of the state at a bare minimum level. Uh, obviously providing, uh, you know, police and fire service, stuff like that. Uh, if you don't have holistically all of these things, you end up with kind of a toxic business environment. You mentioned rule of law is a good word for it um, in general. And that's important to protect the customers as well as the investors. So that stuff's a pretty big deal. Um, and, you know, other than that, I think it's important for, especially for developing countries to create frameworks where they can uh, build wealth and capture wealth uh, in such a way that allows them to be outward facing either immediately or eventually. And, uh, you know, build sort of that economic base uh, from the ground up as best as possible. Okay, so for more, for already developed countries that, that have, have those institutions and have the rule of law, and let's say America or a, any country in Europe, and, and let's say the year prior the growth was zero or minus, minus 0 0.2, and this year full steam ahead, we really want economic growth, what do we do? Sure. Um, it really depends. So um, it, it depends on the appetite for the type of growth and what type of growth you're really looking for. So um, for instance, we could... Options. Yeah. So what I was going to mention was um, you could probably grow the economy to, to 
some degree by cutting a bunch of regulations and getting rid of a bunch of regulatory bodies, right? So if we were to say, you know, not have an FDA or, or not have any building standards, you might see some short-term, you know, yearly economic growth because all of a sudden there's basically a lot more money to be made uh, in a much easier way. Um, but those kind of things would probably be short-term and it would probably result in the market not functioning as well as it could long-term. If we're talking about how could we sustainably grow the economy in a way that doesn't sort of sacrifice the regulations that we rely on to sort of have a have a capitalist mar functional market system uh, which i'm in favor of is uh you'd, you'd want to look at uh the tax code for the most part you know could we cut taxes on lower and middle income people could we simplify a bureaucracy here and there uh that could sort dollars more efficiently than the government could um stuff like that i think would be reasonable policy to look towards um could we provide tax credits or incentives uh for entrepreneurship or innovation that we're not providing now uh, stuff like that okay um so two two points from what you said i mean i i think i i I think I know what you may say, but I'll ask anyway. Why do you think there's like a conflict between regulations and economic growth on the one hand? And the second question is, um, in your opinion, uh, what role do entrepreneurs play in this equation of economic growth? Yeah, so um, it, when, you, when you look at what economic growth is, right, the final price of, of goods and services and necessarily the, the quantity of those goods and services, um, we can imagine a world where if we didn't have any sort of standards for uh, food production, we can imagine a world where there'd probably be more of it because regulations are ultimately a barrier to entry, right? That if a market is heavily regulated, I'm not saying food is, to be fair, it is, kind of. But um, if a market is heavily, heavily regulated, then it's going to be harder for uh, basically people to enter that market with any sort of an expertise because now instead of, uh, say, growing apples, for instance, say you're the ba best apple grower you know, west of the Mississippi or something, well, you're now entering into the market another axis that this person has to be abreast of, the regulatory environment of growing apples, right? So if you find yourself in a system where a market is uh, overregulated to the point of inefficiency, you're driving up the cost of doing business uh, in the form of compliance and regulatory standards um, that aren't necessarily, like, necessarily material, but really they are, especially if you want to be competitive at scale. It just depends on the market, though. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't regulate things like food or medicine or housing, uh, you know, building standards. Um, it rather just means that it's important to recognize that these things do come at a cost. It's just a matter of reconciling, uh, is the cost of that regulation worth it uh, in terms of long-term outcomes? Um, a lot of regulations make markets uh, function better than they would otherwise. Um, uh, and or uh, 
regulations can lead to a, a more socially optimal outcome than we uh, ex than we would expect or experience without them. And so you just have to measure that sort of you know socially optimal outcome. Uh, does it provide a socially optimal outcome, or does it and or does it make the market actually function better? And you know if these answers contradict each other, how do we reconcile that? Uh, and if they don't, obviously you've just got a kind of a win-win-win of a regulation. So just just keeping uh, that awareness of regulations and their effects on the market are important. Okay, and um, I mean, I have an I have an opinion that uh, there are market forces that also that can uh, regulate itself in a sense, or, or like a standards body, or uh, a consumer group, or things of that nature. Um, but with regards to an entrepreneurs, obviously regulation will also help um reduce the uh upfront costs or, or learning curve or include more entrepreneurs to or encourage them to come into the market but apart from regulations is a, you you mentioned tax credits or something along those lines yeah if you're talking if your if your focus is sort of narrowly economic growth um yes then things that would put more money into lower and middle income people's hands would tend to result in more economic growth. And so whether because the money circulates better, at least it tends to, right? So uh when you give a money to uh, a really lower income person, say someone who's just living paycheck to paycheck, whatever that means depending on where they live, and you give that person an extra $2,000, right, in the form of either a direct payment or a tax credit or, um, you know, a cut in their payroll tax or something like that. Um, they're going to take that two grand and spend it on uh, whatever they want, to be fair. But whatever they want is contributing to, in a macro scale, the economic growth uh, of society, right? That basically you're shifting demand to the right because people have a boost in their income and the second part of that equation, the income actually circulates and matriculates up and out throughout the economy. I, I see. I'm, I'm focusing a bit differently on the question. I, I'm not necessarily worried about demand or people having money to buy more stuff. I'm worried more about production. Uh, people setting up new companies, entrepreneurs setting up new companies. Yeah. Uh, ah, I see. So you're asking jobs. Yeah. what could the government do or refrain from doing to encourage entrepreneurship and, and, and innovation assuming assuming that this leads to economic growth yes i see i see um so but by the way is it is it actually preferable to have economic growth at some cost or is there like a cutoff point where you say, well beyond this it's not really worth it well it's a good question i think um it's probably always good to have some level of economic growth um at least in today's society there's people who are you know quote unquote degrowthers who who think that mostly in environmental policy the idea that you know it's not sustainable to have perpetual economic growth but um i'm not really on that side i don't think uh, especially given the standards of living of broader society or not i i don't think to a standard that we would really be happy with i don't think um in terms of, I'm, I'm familiar with with that movement. Yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit strange. 
yeah i mean as look as long as there's people in poverty we've we've you know we've we've probably not grown quite enough and equitably enough but that's you know obviously a, a different thought but in terms of what the government could do to encourage entrepreneurship um tax policy probably matters to a certain extent uh like in the video i made about corporate taxes i advocate the idea that um smaller businesses probably shouldn't pay corporate taxes it doesn't that doesn't seem to make sense to me um basically if you're a larger business i think there's some rationale for for having uh, corporate taxes but um if you're getting off the ground as a small business uh, i think there's probably some argument that you should be able to retain more of your cash if you want um and do what you do what you want with it that's one thing um Another thing would probably be funding uh, government research probably p plays a relatively pivotal role. Um, the government can provide uh, research that the market doesn't necessarily have the motivation to do, but can help the broader market. Um, so for instance, um, the government tends to be better at investing in long-term uh, projects that don't necessarily immediately give a return. And so with that in mind, uh, we can imagine the types of research that the government can engage in that would be helpful um, uh, in general, right? So people talk about like uh, the mRNA technology where, where the government, uh, I believe the government originally funded the research that uh, prototyped mRNA technology. But once the government developed that, they didn't make any drugs out of it. They just came up with the technology and then the private market took that and developed the COVID vaccine, right? That's an example of efficient government research that can help out the broader market um, in general. A theoretical example could be uh, if the government were to invest a ton of money into like fission nuclear power. Well, fission nuclear power would be able to provide an incredibly cheap uh, baseload electricity that's also carbon free. Now, the private market isn't going to have the resources or the patience to invest hundreds of billions of dollars over the course of 20 to 40 years to develop technology like that, but it would actually help out the rest of society, and it would also help people build disposable income and make investments. So stuff like that, I think the government can do to encourage entrepreneurship and make it happen. So, um, uh, I have a little bit of a... I don't know, in a crisis at the moment, I, I, I kind of disagree with your opinion here. And I have some things to say, but, I, but because I'm not in that kind of, I'm, I'm discussing <laughs> things, I'm asking your opinion on things. So I'm not sure if I should mention it, but I, I do, I, I, I'm aware that, you know, government funds, funds certain things. I, I believe it's more of a pray and spray approach to some things. Um, so, for example, in my industry, the fact that the government funded uh, DARPA, sorry, DARPA funded like the building blocks of the internet, then it necessarily is the case that everything that uh, we see online, Google, Facebook, Twitter, the government, without the government, they would never have happened. Or at least that's the, the argument from uh, the book, The Entrepreneurial State. And I'm... Um, I'm not entirely sure I'm fully on board with that, but... Well, who, who knows I, if I it would have I... happened? Well, I was going to add in, who knows if it would have happened eventually? It's just a matter of the speed at which it happens. Uh, and 
you know, the, the government can uh, sometimes extend valuable investment towards the market or towards people that the market left to its own devices might take a long time to do. Um, for instance, a simple example of this would be the city of Chattanooga, Tennessee. They had gigabit internet in 2010, basically a decade before anyone else did, right? And that's just because, you know, the government, that's, that's local city government, had the ability and the push uh, to regulate the internet as a public utility and provide what was ultimately a better service for a cheaper price towards its citizens, right? Um, because the government was able to build the infrastructure a bit more efficiently and quickly than the market could uh, at the time. Right. So it's it's not a matter of the government doing everything or doing all you know oh you know the the the, the foundations of you know modern technological advancement is is always based on government research. It's really just to say that there's a place for government in that equation, and that it's 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 not a place that could necessarily be filled by uh, a purely private uh, system. Um. So I, I, I don't want to dwell on this point too for too long. I would say that, and I think, I'm not sure if this statistic is from you or from someone else, but the government, in terms of okay. all research, the government funds, I think, 25% and 75% is the market, I believe. I'll have to check. I just remember the number from something. That sounds right. Um, with regards to the gigabit Ethernet to a local town, I'm, I'm familiar with the story and I'm familiar with that Americans have this monopoly between the different internet providers or there's no two internet providers in one in one place in in the US I'm not sure why exactly but yeah well, I mean, even when I was in yeah it's because the market it fails you know in, in that regard right that it it's 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 not it's more profitable for these you know oligarchic um like essentially oligopoly type system um, to have sort of districted monopolies, especially in rural areas. That's one. That's one. This is a good example that happened recently. You heard about probably the Biden uh, infrastructure plan that included tens of billions of dollars to ex to extend broadband internet access to rural communities um, because it's just not profitable for businesses to go and build internet lines and compete in rural areas, especially against the local ISP that already basically has like an 80-90% market share. This is just another example where the government coming in could um, basically make, you know, uh, extend more equitable and affordable access to uh, something that's pretty cool, you know, the internet, right? Oh, I mean, in, in the UK, in the north of the country, we also have an issue where some farmers or some smaller communities do not have access to fiber fiber internet they, they'll have i'm not sure if that's still the case I, th I think there's been a push to get them on board yeah but um there was i don't know maybe like eight years ago complaints that people are still using modems and stuff like that over over regular phone lines um but in your example of a town saying look we're gonna band together we're gonna put like uh, a fiber line underneath the ground or, or a cable on top of something and we're going to get gigabit ethernet to the town and then we're going to distribute it equally through some kind of wi-fi system i mean those things were available 
when I was in high school, and, and I believe South Korea started them before anyone else did. Um, I, I don't know. I can't speak to uh, what's happening in, in the U.S. with regards to why is it exactly the case that there's no two competing internet providers in the same area. I'm not sure if it is to do with regulations or it's to do with an agreement between the two companies. I, I can't speak to it. But going back to the um, uh, innovation, Peter, Peter Thiel is very concerned about the innovation. I've, saw, I've seen a few of his um, talks about why don't we have more of it. And um, he says that if a government gets into a particular industry and starts funding research on it, then it slows down. It doesn't develop as quickly. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure. He mentioned an example where, um, let's say, chemical engineering. If government starts to invest in, yeah. in research grants and stuff like that, then it kind of has an effect on how much money a chemical engineer can get on a maximum maximum capacity like how what what is the, the salary and if a government comes in and cause it for whatever reason of either bureaucracy or it's it's tied to someone approving something then um the wages in that industry will be low whereas um silicon valley and internet startups they never had a cap on how much people can own and uh, people right out of university you know they try to get to get in there uh, or, or let's say there was a move away from finance or people going straight into finance, they started funneling into uh, Silicon Valley, which means, you know, talented people funneled into that industry. Um, what do you think? Yeah, um, I would say, give me, give me one second. Sorry, I'm not, I didn't actually mean to do this. No, I you're good, you're good. I, I just say Sorry, I innovation to... is just a near and dear to my heart is why I'm... <laughs> no, well, you're I'm good. You're good. I'm excited about it. I had to tell. Uh, I, had to, I had to answer a question someone asked. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I kind of disagree. It kind of goes against the fundamentals of, of of what you'd imagine of how a market would function, right? So, um, I don't really think the uh, you know I don't think the government is sort of pushing people's wages lower in that research really causes the market to lack access in general i think really if 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 a technology or an innovation storyboarded out were to be profitable and marketable the two most obviously the the two most important things when it comes to any sort of a research then companies would still be incentivized to pay more than the government get labor over and research that product um it's just that there are certain things that take so many years in terms of research or um they're not necessarily as immediately marketable um that it's not a good incentive to do research privately um most research at least in america is done privately but that doesn't mean that the core component of research, you know, that 25%, 30%, however much it is, that's government research, isn't really crucial to the market. Let me, let me ask a question on this point, and, and I'll give an example. So the company BioNTech, the one that sold 
the vaccine to Pfizer, who then uh, just, just um, what did they do? They uh, tested it and went through the process with the FDA. With the FDA. But the BioNTech, they, they developed the actual thing, the mRNA thing. They spent, I believe, 10 years funding research in that particular uh, area. So if I'm not mistaken, these were Turkish immigrants that immigrated to Germany, husband and wife team. Um, they, had a, they had a previous company that also did some research for seven odd years. And, and, it, and this research means that they're paying salaries to all the researchers while not seeing any money yet. They succeeded in something, I forget what. They got paid a lot of money, so they opened this new BioNTech and, and they put money in there to, to start researching in a bit of a different area. And even now, the, the money that they made from, um, from this vaccine, the, they wanted to use the same mRNA to fight a specific, two specific types of cancer. They got 1.5 billion, so they're, and they're putting all that money in research. So, I mean, seven to 10 years in the area, at, at the very least, of uh, biotech, that's not un unheard of. Um, and people go into that sector understanding that that's what it's going to cost, and they still they still commit to that. They just need, you know, financial capital. It doesn't always work, but you know, one in ten, yeah. or something like well, something I, like those odds. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at it here though. It, it says that in terms of BioNTech, the they've they've had hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of money that's been granted or loaned to them by the government. Right, the so government? Uh, it seems to it seems to indicate various governments. Uh, I guess BioNTech is like, I mean, similar to most people. I, I have not heard of this company before COVID, obviously, but it's it seems that uh, many many government and government institutions have worked with this company in order to to grant them, um, you know, money or or, or loans in for for various sort of forms of develop or sorry, I'm sorry for various forms of research and um uh, so that's you know that doesn't seem that, un I, i'm not I, mean, I don't think that's i don't think that's necessarily bad you're in right. this, this sort of mixed mixed economy environment and you're trying to get your company up and running so if you yeah. can get grants or loans you you make that effort yeah, no, of course not. That's all I'm saying is that well, the you know the the type of money and resource that governments are able to move uh, is a lot grander oftentimes than the private market. The government just has a lot more power to move resources uh, than any one company, and so for the government to come in and do their own research, and then in situations like this, of course, uh, provide grants and loans and financing to private entities to do similar research i mean there's nothing wrong with that it's it's really just a matter of uh explaining and, and understanding that um the government plays an important role in um uh, enabling select uh forms of innovation in the economy right um and it, it's, it's you know difficult. We're, we're better for it it's difficult to say it's just it's I'm not, I'm not sold on the idea just because they, they spread money around that they're responsible, solely responsible for it. I mean, no, I didn't. Okay, well, hold, did spread well, money around. Well, I didn't say that to be fair, right? So the government, 
isn't solely responsible for entrepreneurship and innovations and stuff like the government didn't as far as i'm aware didn't create netflix right or or you know didn't didn't uh i think that google actually was did originally get some money from the government so maybe that's not a good example to steel man your point but i mean the point is though that the government's not responsible for all innovation that happens it's just a matter of the government plays an important role in uh, some amount of the core level of innovation in our society, right? And, and, and recognizing, you know, failing to recognize the important role of government in the sort of spark of innovation in an economy is just as ignorant or, or obtuse as when people try to say what you said at the beginning, which is, oh, things like the internet would just have never existed without the government. The truth is there's a ebb and flow and a, and a pull, push and pull with these kind of things and, and a relationship between the government and the market that needs to exist in regards to innovation. Um, and that can be uh, very effective. You know, that's all. I remember, this is a true story. I was working in a company that had some... Uh... Somewhat artificial intelligence, not really, but a little bit. Like it was in the name, but but not not like super artificial intelligence. And they were approached by the government, and the government said they want to spend a billion a billion pounds propping up the artificial intelligence sector in the UK. They never asked for money, but uh, they were kind of like a pro. I I don't know if this is this is this is like anecdotal, but can I just ask one thing? And and I am keen on this this answer. When did the government get involved in? Um, investing in research in, in the US, what year roughly? Because I'm assuming that prior to that it was it was from the market, from the innovation came from the market. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh to be honest, I'm not sure there's ever been a time when the government didn't do its own you know, didn't invest in R and D. I mean I'm sure there's probably examples even back in like the seventeen, you know, eighties and nineties or something. Uh, of the government in, investing in some amount of research, uh, so I'm not I'm not sure honestly the answer to that question because because the truth is I'm not sure if um, I don't know if there is an answer. Uh, I mean even back in medieval Europe or something, the you know governments governments invested in innovation and, and research. Um, it may have not been focused in types of areas we see today, but certainly a uh, you know there's probably always been some amount of R&D that governments have, have engaged in. I, um, I saw a lecture once about intellectual property rights in the U.S. and how it was early on. I'm, 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 I don't want to seem stupid, but it, it was early on in the Constitution or, or it was early on implied from the Constitution but cleared up in the Federalist. In one or in two Federalist papers, and I and the point that the person was making in the lecture was that um, these intellectual property rights really helped America innovate. So, in the eighteen in the in seventeen eighty or seventeen ninety, most of America was largely agrarian, and then a um, hundred years later, they were they were already industrializing quite fast. Uh, I believe, I mean, I believe there was the, 
so this 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 could be something that I may seem a bit silly if I don't get right, but the telegraph was invented. Some kind of submarine was invented by the time there was the Civil War. Um, also, all sorts of things to do with the grinding wheat. Some kind of patterns. There was electricity. No, electricity was in England. Not sure. Uh, I, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think Thomas Edison was. I thought he was an American. Maybe that's just being ignorant on my part. Um, I think. But, but the what? Was what British? I'm not sure. I'll have to check. Well, anyway, yeah, but, but no idea. But the the point he was making, and I and I found interesting that the more that that prior in the UK, when you would get a patent on something, it was basically a monopoly from the crown that says you are the one that can sell this technology, which means that you as the inventor would have to actually sell something with your invention. Whereas in in the US, um, you could say, well, I'm the inventor and I want to specialize in inventing. I have intellectual property rights, and if a, a businessman wants to hook up with me and they, they handle the business side and pay me a, a license fee, then that's fine, and I'll, and I'll keep specializing in what, what I do, and they specialize in what they do. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on. So with regards to, eco to economic growth, what is the connection between economic growth and, and poverty reduction, in, in your opinion, or how do you measure that, or what, what would you look at to see if that's actually happening, or is it distributed unevenly, the economic growth? Yeah, there, you can look at the inequality of society with the Gini coefficient, just, you know, how, you know, what's the relative uh, amount of income and how it's, sorry, how it's distributed. Um, you can do no, the same I mean, thing with wealth. Not distributed yeah, sure. necessarily, but like, is it targeting the, the people in poverty? Is it alleviating specifically the poorer end of the spectrum? Uh, is is there in fact a connection between economic growth and alleviation between the poor end of the spectrum, or is it economic growth and they don't feel it at w whatsoever? Well, how no, would you yeah. measure that? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. Is that um, you you can look at how unequal a society is, and you can kind of from there try to determine well if we're getting a lot of economic growth and society is still relatively unequal, there's probably some structure of the economy that's causing this to happen, right? Uh, that should probably be alleviated, right? Economic growth is a good thing, but it's important that the structures of the economy exist to such an extent that that growth is within reason equitably distributed, right? You, you don't, you don't want just a bunch of oligarchs to become richer on the back of you know, their slave labor, right? GDP might go up, but that doesn't really comment on the broader sort of societal level of, you know, material wealth. Right. And so, um, that, you know, th th those are some metrics to look into that, that are important that if, if you see economic growth happening, but you don't see like average incomes going up, right. There's probably, you know, there, there's probably some issues there that are, are deserving of some, uh, that need to be rectified, I would imagine. Okay, is there is there a measure for standard of living? So, for example, and this is this is a, like a, a particular angle to help the poor. So, if if GDP, if uh, economic growth, if economic the economy grows and GDP 
rises. And let's say as a result, uh, we produce more of, more of some things and the price of those things go down. Meaning in, in this situation, the wages have not gone up, but the purchasing power has gone up. Um, and especially for, for the poor. Is that something you would look at or would you look at, or is, or is the Gini coefficient more of a symbolic stat for, for looking at something like that? Hey, you can you can look at consumption expenditures. So, like, what you know, it, th that's probably a better way of determining what I would call material wealth, um, okay. and go from there. Um, a lot of times, sometimes governments will provide that statistic based on percentiles. So, you know, the bottom ten percent, what's their consumption mm -hmm. expenditure, yeah. stuff like that. Um, there's also a human development index, which. Mm -hmm. I think is by country i don't know if it's more granular than that that tries to determine well not necessarily just the economic growth but like things like incomes access to electricity education uh running water you know stuff like that where the uh you know it's not always the case that gdp is is always the best metric so stuff stuff like that can help answer those types of questions Okay. Can I just ask if you know offhand uh, the bottom 10% 10 or the bottom quintile in the US, in your opinion, how would you say they're doing currently? The bottom 10%. Um, the, bo the bottom quintile, you know, the, the poorest of the poor. Just uh, rough, roughly. So, uh, oh, here we go. This is what I was looking Okay. Sorry, I needed to. I needed to look at the numbers. Um, That's fine. I'm, yeah, I was so we to be honest. Yeah, so we're talking about people who have less than basically twenty five thousand dollars a year in income, and okay. yeah, I would say those people are definitely struggling. I mean, you know, living on less than twenty five grand a year in America is pretty much never going to be comfortable almost no matter where you live. Um, sure, there's some places, but, you know, uh, the, the trouble is that some places have really low cost of living, but that doesn't mean that there's mm -hmm. jobs there, right? So um, you have to balance, like, where are the jobs and how expensive is it to live there? And uh, so, yeah, I would say pretty much anyone living under 25 grand a year is probably living pretty tight. Is, just, just, sorry, do those figures include people who are on their pension? And are not no longer working, or people who are students or, or or teenagers, or is or is that not really what's counted into that figure? Um, it's a good question. I I'm not. I, I believe it should include. Um, this is household income. So. Oh really? You, you know. So if, if I I believe it should include things like your capital gains, income, or your pension wealth, stuff like that. And obviously, if you're a student, you're within typically a household, so you're going to be included in there as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it, it should uh, include those kinds of things. Okay. No, that's, I, just, I just wanted to know. Um, I'll, I'll move on to, to the next topic. And, and I am, can I please put you a little bit on the spot? Because I've seen your debates and there's, something that frustrates me and I want to I want to comment if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, go for it. 
So I've seen you debate um, Vosh and, and Demon Mama. And uh, it seems to me like you're coming in with all these nice, accurate, not, I'm not, not debating, accurate de details. And they're like very much focused on the morality of the situation. Like you can say, well, I've got these studies that say that uh, people in the Nordic countries are happier and uh, so on and so forth. This is better here. And, 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 and they're like, well, they're being exploited by the capitalist. I don't care. What we need is, uh, is for them to not be exploited. Did you ever get that feeling? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's sort of what underpins a lot of the socialist response to, to, to systems of capitalism that have worked quite well in terms of delivering people happiness and developed, you know, high wealth, basically. Um, because socialists have kind of a problem, I think, when contending with Nordic countries, because these people are very happy and... They're not perfect societies or utopias by any by any means, but it seems like the experiments of Nordic, um, you know, welfare capitalism has worked out a lot better than most socialist experiments. And so, oftentimes, the reliance is less on empirics and and data, and more so based on um, much more esoteric kind of things like theory, you know, theories of exploitation, either at home or abroad, and 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 stuff like that, which I think can be, you know, not necessarily hand waved, but, um, uh, you know, I I was I was I was perfectly willing to have a more theoretical conversation with Demon Mama and with Vosh a more empirical conversation where he was challenging more the empirics, Demon Mama challenged more the theoretical stuff. So, pretty interesting conversations all around. Yeah, I really enjoyed the uh, Coconut Island thing. Very oh, much. yes. Yes, Coconut Island. A classic, um, classic rebuttal yeah. to the idea of having to work. <laughs> um, the thing is, I, I, I feel I, that what is missing is like a, a sort of ethics because I don't think, I don't think that um, it's the points you made is I don't think it's esoteric or emotional to them, I think it's it's a matter of of um, philosophy. They have they have one. It's a matter of ethics, and I think that um, to counter their ethics, in a sense, you have to have one of one of your own. You have to have you have to have that capitalist capitalism has an ethic behind it, as you can then say for so for example. Um, it yeah. gives you the freedom to to pursue your own happiness, and that is ethical. Um, you reduce violence in society because people now start to to trade instead of, I don't know, steal from one another. And you oh, you mentioned the government and rule of law, so all these things kind of reduce violence from society, or at least that's kind of the idea. And all and this sort of um, uh, freedom and the reduction of of violence accelerates transactions in an economy so people can i don't know get richer faster or uh, form like uh, cooperate with other people easier they don't have to worry about being cheated as much or, or something like that but i think that um i think that it would be helpful if you if you attack the morality of the situation with your own morality so if if, for example, they're saying, well, someone's being exploited, obviously it's immoral. If Vosh is saying, 
Norway is only as rich as it is because other countries are suffer uh, countries that they once colonized. I'm not sure if that was the argument. Countries that they once colonized uh, are suffering now, so there's an exchange of of resources. And um, what do you think? Sorry about I'm just rambling at this stage. Yeah, no, I mean that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I think. Um... Again, I, I try to do that during the demon conversation just to say that, you know, look, I don't think that um I don't think it's immoral to to you know have to work really. I think it's just a standard of sort of the human condition. I, I obviously um I talked to Destiny about it in a follow up conversation, which was just the idea that, you know, we don't we theoretically, yeah, it'd be great if no one had to work. Right? I mean nobody would intellectually disagree with the idea that if you don't want to work at a job, you don't have to. It's just a matter of necessity and the types of frameworks that, you know, what what kind of frameworks can you put in place to um as as equitably and, and fairly institute a system where you recognize that, you know, you're gonna have to work most of the times, right? And so um that's kind of the logic of the of the demon mom conversation that I thought, you know, went well enough. No, I'm not. Obviously, it went. It obviously went well. I I remember commenting on your Discord that it's. I had moments of cringe, like it was very it was attacks <laughs> of cringe, but I I would say this. So, so obviously you're right in this example you've given. Obviously you're right. People, everyone has to work. If if there were no was no capitalism, or no cities or something, you would still have to work in nature. Like you, you have to feed yourself. You have to make sure you have a roof over your head. You have to find water. These the, are these are not things you can avoid and socialists tend to blame capitalism in a sense because well capitalism should have achieved abundance and in the Jean-Jacques Rousseau kind of mentality nature is is abundant already and capitalism kind of put people in a situation where they've kept abundance away from them on purpose because they needed slaves to work for them or what's in quotations but I think um what I would say is that to counter it, that, that I wouldn't actually go down that path. It depends how angry I am, but I wouldn't actually go down that path. I would have said something like, first of all, Karl Marx said that working is the essence of man. So people attach meaning and purpose to their life from working. Now, ideally, it should be something that they enjoy doing or they feel that they're, contrib- that they're contributing value to society uh, in instead of being forced to take a particular situation, but um, what we can do in like a free market system or capitalist system is give them more and more options to choose the best one for them. So they have more of a choice to determine themselves which which is the best choice for them. If it's, if it's the one that makes the most money in the finance sector, there could be one. If it's like middle of the road teacher in university because they really care about teaching and they think it gives them a great purpose in life, we should allow them to do that. It's not as... It's not something we want to get away with. People find a lot of meaning uh, in the in their life from working, but it's it's um, it's just a point to make. What, what do you think? Sorry. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's something I get at with. Um, I think I've spoken to Hans a couple times on his stream, and I think that's one thing I mentioned is that, um, you know, just because how do I put this? Like, just because someone works at what you might think is a crappy job doesn't mean that they are unhappy with it. It just depends on the job. It depends on the person. And so instituting tools that, um, 
tools and policies and regulations and sort of tax structures that exist so that uh, people are as satisfied as possible with where they work. They have as many options as feasibly possible to give them in terms of where to work. Um, and they have the resources uh, required to prepare them for the type of work that they want to do, education and training and stuff like that. Um, you know, to me, I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, it's just, I think it's, I think it's the job. I think it's, I think what's a tougher burden for socialists is to, you know, say we, say we have just a great society, right? Uh, everyone gets uh, a UBI equal to, you know, a, a, you know, a material living, um, say that, uh, there's 80, 90% unionization, there's worker board membership, you know, there's cooperatives all around because of good government, government subsidies and stuff like that. Um, but there's obviously, because there's unions, because there's worker board membership, there's still some amount of private investment, private organization and economy. Um, but also there's a UBI that everyone can rely on, or there's a negative income tax that you can fall back on, whatever. Um, socialists have to explain why is it immoral for a person in that society to work for another person in that society? Why is that wrong? Right, they've got all the resources available to them. If they don't want to work, functionally, they don't have to. Um, what's wrong with that relationship, right? And I'm just, to me, I, well, you I'll, know, you, I'll, I'll tell you the answer if if you'd like. Um, sure. It it is. Um, well, I can't I can't really steal man this position, so it's a, so it's a little bit it's a little bit tongue in cheek. But basically, I've I've read a lot. I've read a lot of Marx's literature. Um, actually, we didn't get to Schumpeter as well, but I'll ask that in a second. And um, they, it's not that they don't. It's not that they. It's not that they necessarily. How can I explain? It? They're very much against bourgeoisie's owning private property. That's the main thing of atta of attacking in socialism, and uh, in communism, there's just the abolition of. Uh, property rights in general um so basically any any system that has rich people in it that's bad why why are they rich because they must have exploited the labor the surplus value right. from other people and that's unacceptable no even, and, and even that if, yeah uh, let me just end on even if like um and i think you actually mentioned this even if the entire society suffers or, or like the gini coefficient is is a lot lower, but the GDP is a lot lower, that's still kind of better than the bourgeoisie's owning private property. Yeah, and, and, and my moral argument in that regard is that um, in a society where you've done everything I've just described, you've virtually eliminated the necessary coercion, in my view, of you know, a capitalist framework. Um, and so it's... it's you know, it's reasonable for a laborer to sell their labor to a capitalist so that they have access to capital they wouldn't otherwise. And it's more of a trade of surplus rather than an extraction of surplus where, you know, I'm taking surplus value of the capitalist's capital because I wouldn't have this capital otherwise. I might not have the capacity or the desire to fund that capital myself. Um, and capitalist wouldn't have my labor obviously so you're you're trading surpluses rather than one extracting from another i just you know that that would be my view and sort of my 
you could say moral argument, but really, I just I don't I don't really like moralizing economics, but socialists kind of yeah. make you make you do yes, it yes. a lot of the times. So that would be my so, argument, though. So I would say this: I I think that if if you're if you're operating in a gray area where there's some coercion, but it's okay because of this, then you're giving them like a hook to 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 nibble on in, in a sense. So, for example. The, the idea of the coercion argument in and of itself is this. You have, you have two parties, uh, an employer and an employee, and both the employer wants to give a job, the employee wants a job, and they, they kind of like negotiate, they meet in the middle, and both people walk away from the exchange, from the voluntary exchange, uh, happier and profiting in one way or another. If they didn't profit, they wouldn't proceed with the exchange. And the idea with... Um, with kind of like the, the co why is it exploitative is because on a two-party uh, exchange, you're only focusing on one party. So you have a very narrow view of, of what's happening in reality and you focus on the employer and you see the employer is making a profit and that's, that's your, like your magnifying glass is, is only focused on, on them. And uh, if they're making a profit, they must have made a profit at the, at the expense of someone else. It can't be the case that someone else also made a profit. It just cannot be. And then they say, well, this is exploitation. If, if the, if the employ employer made any money at all, then they're exploiting labor. And if they made zero, then they wouldn't be able to make any money. Therefore, capitalism is in and of itself coercive or, or exploitative. But if you zoom out a bit, and you say, well, look, there's two parties here. It's not exploitative. They both agree to it. Um, and uh, again, if you want it to be, if you want to give workers more options, then give them more, allow more employers to exist in the market. Therefore, their wages will rise as a result of competition. Or you can say, for example, if you want the employees to increase their wages, if they increase their skills, their experience, their talent, that would mean the employers are now competing for their scarce resources, their scale skills, basically, or know-how. And you could recommend something like that if you feel that, that it is unequal in some way. But it is not exploitative if both sides voluntarily agree. At least, you know, that's my minarchist position. But if you say, well, look, I understand that capitalism is a little bit coercive or a little bit exploitative, and, but I add, you know, Worker board union unions workable things, so it's it's kind of okay. They'll they'll kind of jump on it. So well, it's still not a hundred percent okay. It's still not moral. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, I'm not I'm not sure if it's valuable to ignore the coercive course elements. I mean, the truth is is that um, the relationship between an employee and an employer can certainly be coercive, right? And it's you know that can happen in a market socialist system as well, right? Um, it's just a matter of trying to eliminate the coercion that exists, right? And and who who you're being coerced by, right? So there's several frameworks for developing um a like a, a labor economy, you could say, right? So the first is kind of a more capitalist mode of production, like we have now. You got employees and employers on a private side for the most part. Um, the second would be like a centrally planned system where basically the state's the employer. The third would be a market socialist system where, you know, you've got, uh, how do I put this? You, basically, every employee is an owner, right? Um, but it's a democratic structure. Uh, and 
from and the fourth would be like a communal type system where you've got there's not like necessarily a concept of ownership but it's you know still a sort of democratic framework communally ran sort of thing um and the first side of capitalism as a labor market is you've got uh you know, a potential for employers being coercive to their employees, taking advantage of their bargaining power and their leveraging uh, ability of those employees. That's one thing. Uh, so minimizing that's important. Uh, obviously, under a central planning system, the course of element comes from the state, perhaps the state telling you what to do, how to work, where to work, when to work, stuff like that. Um, under a market socialist system, obviously, you could be essentially at the will of your cooperative, right? That if it's a democratic framework, um, you might have a minority opinion that isn't represented in that business's operations. Um, and lastly, when it comes to the communal sort of communist type system, well, this is sort of a theoretical construct that I'm not sure holds up to itself because, you know, in theory, oh, you could just leave the commune, right? Or, you, you know, you don't have to always listen to the anarchist sort of rules that we've set in place. And it's like, okay, well, there's always, I think, necessarily a course of element involved when your response is, well, you can always just fucking leave, right? Um, and so every labor market and, and system of, of labor and organization of labor has the ability to be coercive, right? It's, it's just a matter of how, how can we minimize that coercion and, and go from there. What do you mean by, what do you mean by coercive? Because coercive in like the... The more legal sense is like threat of force, but you mean like uh, leverage, like a bit more leverage than the other person, kind of coercive, or? Yeah, I'm not talking about. I don't mean threat of force. I mean essentially coercion as, as a as a what I would define it as is coercion. Well, coercion I think exists when um, because of some power leverage imbalance, you have the ability to get people to do things they don't they wouldn't otherwise do, right? Um, or deal with conditions they wouldn't otherwise tolerate. And so that's how I would define coercion in the context of like a socialism and capitalism argument. Okay, so if, if let's say I'm, an, I'm a highly skilled employee and I, and I have leverage over my employers because I'm just, there's not that many of me or I have a very niche skill, do, am I uh, coercing them? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I say as much, uh, I made a video about my um uh, is capitalism course of video where i talk about you know if if you're like the only guy in the whole entire world that can say you know fix this certain thing right you could absolutely fuck over a bunch of employers who are contracting you to fix that thing you're the only one that can do it right um and so it's good yeah yeah exactly right and so you know it's it's uh it's possible. It just doesn't happen as often that the employee has like a relative power imbalance, right? So um, it depends on the I context. Don't, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm, I'm, in a, <laughs> I'm in a very niche profession. There's only 23 <laughs> of me in my country. Yeah, exactly. If you've got like these, you know, different certification standards or something or whatever. Um, I think someone once told me that... Um, you can actually get paid very well if you code in archaic languages, yes, like languages yes, yes. that are, yeah, relatively outdated because like government systems might be, they, like a government system may have been coded in the 1990s on some totally outdated language. But if you're the guy that knows it, you can really extract some 
surplus of your own, I guess, right? <laughs> from the from the, the government coming in, holding the colostomy bag like on a on a on like a pole with like some wheels. Yeah, I'll I'll fix your problem from the sixties. No problem. <laughs> exactly. Actually, yeah. So stuff like that can exist certainly. There's actually something if I can add to your listeners, they may find it valuable. There are there are these really old uh, database technologies in, in financial institutions, and they can never they can never turn them off to upgrade them because it just costs too much money. So these are really really old technologies, and if if you know how to service them, you got a job for life basically because they're never gonna shut it off and upgrade it. It just never happen. <laughs> yeah exactly stuff like that yeah no you're right but yeah i would say that in 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 a sense that's that's uh yeah that that is coercion as well right it's just who's taking advantage of who right so well it's their decision to to not replace it or do this it's i mean yeah they'd rather not pay me or other people as much but um i mean to some degree like you know if you're a very talented doctor or you studied, you're, you're the top in your field in something. And, and I, think, I think that's something that a lot of socialists miss because there's, their assumption is that everyone is um, unskilled labor or, or, the, or like the immiseration of the proletariat or like you, because of division of labor in like Adam Smith style, that you get paid less and less wages, just subsistence, subsistence wages. And obviously it hasn't been the case. People go to university for a reason. Everyone tries to get um, these, uh, like, uh, on-the-skilled work experience or these, um, I forgot what you guys call it, uh, like, a, it's not a university, it's like a school for one or two years for a particular kind of trade, trade school. or something. Trade school, yeah. yeah. And, like, every, and like when you work for a company in, like, 10 years, you have 10 years' experience working in that company, and that, that has some value. Uh, so these sorts of ways increase wages, uh, more skill, more experience, t- a talent in a particular something, these things force the employers to find to pay you more, but they don't mind because you're super productive. So from their point of view, it pay- it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's totally right. Um, all right. Well, did did you have anything else? Uh, it's been an hour, but it, you know, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I mean, I th- I think we covered. I have a topic that's a bit. I don't know if I should mention it because it may take a bit up to you. Would you like to to discuss this slightly long? I don't know if it's long, but uh, could be long topic. Um, yeah. If you well, how about this? If you want, you can just message it to me, and we can maybe schedule another time. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. No. So, so really, thank you for your time, and and I appreciate the conversation. Definitely. And, yeah. Uh, yeah it was... I thought it was interesting. For sure. Yeah, it was fun talking to you. Um, and obviously, thanks for being a part of the, you know, sort of community and participating. I see in the Discord a lot. So, you know, it's always nice to have uh, people active and, and talking within the, you know, this sort of small niche community that we've uh, created, I guess. <laughs> so, My pleasure. Um, but all right, I'll talk to you later, bud. Bye.